Father, we just love you. That's why we're here. We're thankful for you. We desire to serve under you as you call us, as you lead us, as you direct us. Pray today that the scriptures would encourage our hearts, that we would see Jesus and that we would see him clearly and loudly and that we would drop our presuppositions and the things we think we need and invite you in to do the things you need to do, not only in our lives, but in the lives of the people around us. So we give you this time because you've graciously given it to us. May you be honored and glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, a couple of weeks ago, uh, we had this toilet handle in our bathroom. It's always plumbing with me, by the way. Okay, so we'll just, we'll just say that. It's always something in the plumbing area. And this handle was just causing our toilet to run and run and run, and it was getting stuck and all these issues. And I had the best intentions to fix it day after day after day, uh, while we were also tiling the backsplash in our kitchen and buying all this other stuff. And I just kept forgetting to buy a toilet handle to fix our toilet. So I finally look at my wife and I said, I'm going to Fred Meyer to buy some grocery things for us that we need. And I'm going to get this toilet handle that we have been just needing so desperately. And I go to Freddy's. And if you've ever been in Freddy's plumbing section, let me just tell you now, don't. Okay, let's just say that, don't. It's horrible. There's, there's nothing there. And I start looking at everything, and they've got these toilet handles. They're like 10 to 15 bucks. I'm like, to flush a toilet? <laughs> you got to be kidding me. This is absolutely ridiculous. Well, deep down in the far left corner, um, I see this price tag, and it's like reduced, 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 reduced. Um, here's why. I think the handle is from like 1992, You boomers really liked brass. You know the brass I'm talking about in all those 90s homes? Well, I think this thing had been sitting on the shelf since 92, and it was like, I'm not kidding, a buck 50. So I buy it. Yes. If you know my wife, she she would not have this, but I did it anyways. And I buy this thing. And I get home, and I don't really say much to anybody. I go in the bathroom, and I fix it, and I leave. And my son goes, Dad, Dad, get in here. Oh, no, what did I do wrong? And I go in there, and he goes, Daddy, are we rich? (laughs) What do you mean, son? Our handle's gold. It's gold, Daddy. (laughs) I'm like, Oh, son, no. (laughs) That's just some brass, my man, and that is some cheap stuff. Now, here's the deal. We all desperately, like my son, uh, want authenticity, don't we? Something to be real. Probably more than in my generation, who is addicted to all kinds of uh, social media and um, putting on personas in this billboard of who you want to think I am, and I just portray that through pictures or sayings or C.S. Lewis quotes so you think I'm smart. And we have this deep desire embedded in each and every one of us that wants uh, someone or something that is authentic, whether it's an authentic church or an authentic marriage, authentic friendship, authentic relationships. And I don't knock that in any way, meaning we definitely desire authenticity in our lives. 
And as we begin to look at this passage of Jesus and what he's doing in Matthew, this was the question that the crowds who'd come around him really wanted to know about Jesus. You see, chapter 7 that we finished off last week ended with this saying where the crowds were astonished at what Jesus was saying. Now, throughout the history of the world, there had been great teachers like Jesus. There had been a Plato and a Socrates, and there was Rabbi Gamaliel, and there's all kinds of other people that existed that had incredibly wise teachings and wise sayings. And even in the course of history, there have been miracle workers, and there have been people that have done certain things. And so as this crowd is gathering around Jesus, they're definitely intrigued by him because he's coming. And it wasn't necessarily that he was giving some new law, but he was giving the right interpretation of what was spoken in the Old Testament and applying that on the Sermon on the Mount. And the people are going, this is incredible. Should we trust Jesus? Can we trust Jesus? And that's the question that I want to pose to you this morning is, can you, can I, can we collectively, through the ups and downs of life, come together and trust Jesus? Is he authentic, even when it's difficult, even when it's hard? By what authority is he doing all that he's doing? And so we're going to read this. It's, it's lengthy. And I want to talk to you. Chapter 8, verse 1. These are the reasons why you can trust Jesus. Verse 1. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds follow him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will, be, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for proof to them. If you want to reference that, you can go back to Exodus and Leviticus, and you can read some of the laws that were there. Verse 5, when he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him. Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. He said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word. My servant will be healed, for I too am a man under authority and soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, With no one in Israel have I found such a faith. I tell you, many will come from the east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law laying sick with a fever touched her hand, and the fever left her. She arose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illness and bore our disease. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gives orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up to him and said, Teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, 
birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Almost done. And when he got in the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep and they went and woke him saying, save us, Lord, we are perishing. He said to them, why are you afraid, you, O you, of little faith? And he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea. There was a great calm, and the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tomb so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us into the herd of pigs. He said to them, Go. So they come out, so they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank in the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what happened to the demon possessed men. Behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. What we have going on in this section of scripture is the beginning of the call to discipleship. We're moving away from this idea of simply converts and what it looks like to just be a convert who consumes and is just wanting something for ourselves. And over the next three chapters, 8, 9, and 10, Jesus is pushing us towards this idea of discipleship and the cost of discipleship. And we are just at the tip of the iceberg, and the next few weeks are going to unravel a little bit more of what this actually looks like. Now, when you consider what Jesus is doing here, uh, it really reminded me of this section um, in C.S. Lewis' Chronicles of Narnia in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where you have the three kids who didn't rebel uh, and go with the white witch, and they begin to have this conversation around Aslan. And they don't know much about Aslan yet, but Mr. Beaver is talking about Aslan, and finally Lucy says, he's safe then. And then there's this response, and Britain, you can flash it up there on the screen. This is what Mr. Beaver says. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. He's the king, I tell you. What we're going to see is that, of course, Jesus is not safe. But he's good and he's the king. Of course, this call to discipleship is not just a call to fill a padded chair and drink some mediocre coffee on a Sunday morning as you sing some songs. He's calling you into an unsafe calling, a dangerous calling, one in which God desires to work not only in you but also through you. And it's going to be a little bit risky at times. And when we read all of what Jesus has said up to this point in the Sermon on the Mount, it can be a little bit intimidating if we actually take Jesus serious in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And we begin to implement or strive through the power of the Holy Spirit to turn the other cheek, to seek out justice, 
to love one another with a radical kind of love, there's going to be an aspect of this that is met with a deep suspicion of, God, are you actually about my good? If I do these things, they feel like it'll be very painful and difficult to me. And yet this call to discipleship throughout this next chapter is very real, very clear, and it's a dangerous calling. Why is it dangerous? Jesus is flipping all of the ideologies that the Jewish nation held, I wouldn't say all, but the vast majority of them, up on their head about just specific issues, uh, specifically in the area of like theological thinking. Let me just lay a few of these out here in this chapter. In verses 10 through 12, it says this, as he's talking about the faith of this centurion. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from the east and the west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Popular or unpopular teaching with the Jewish culture? Unpopular, right? Uh, The kind of teaching that might get you in a little bit of trouble. You might make some enemies. You might be asked to leave certain places or not come back and teach because they held to an ideology that our heritage, as many of you know this, our heritage, our linkage to Abraham, that we're sons of Abraham, that is what has got us on this inner set with God. You might remember Michael talking about this when he drew the pictures and those that are moving towards God and those that were sort of moving away from him, the bounded set. Do you guys remember that? As Michael shared and talked about that, we're seeing Jesus now play this out as he's hitting these ideas of who has faith and who doesn't, who's in, who's out. He's turning this all up on their heads. And this is what I mean by that. The first story here is a leper that comes to Jesus. Lepers were absolutely marginalized and pushed to the outskirts of society. You had no business coming near one. It's documented that when they came into the streets, they'd have to cry out, unclean, unclean, unclean. And people would try to get out their way in order to not get what they have. And Jesus comes near to this man, and there's such an incredible point in him touching him and giving him purity, healing, and wholeness, and Jesus himself not taking on the leprosy. A leper, a centurion? This guy wasn't just kind of like a good Roman dude. This would have been a guy who had been part of the occupying of Jerusalem. He's a centurion. He would have been a guy that had the spear, and people in Israel looked at him, and maybe even some of Jesus' zealot kind of followers would have said, That guy is the enemy. He's against us. But Jesus says, I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel. Oh, my goodness. What is Jesus doing? These two men who are possessed, they come running out because the demons are in them. Jesus welcomes them, casts out the demons, and the people in the city reject Jesus, and they kick him out. Jesus is spending time with and paying attention to the most unlikely kinds of people. Do you know what kind of a risk it would be to identify yourself with Jesus? 
Do you know it's the same kind of or should be the same kind of risk today? There's a lot of things that cultural Christianity has adopted and we've become quite accustomed to and acquainted with and very familiar. And there has to be at some point a little bit of a looking inward at our own hearts that says, Jesus, is this what you actually have for us? Now, listen, I'm not talking about close-fisted things I go to war over, doctrinal kinds of issues, trinity, creation, death, resurrection, redemption, restoration, uh, the coming of the king, all those types of doctrines, thoughts, and things. Those are not up for debate or discussion. But there's an aspect, if we're going to say, I'm going to follow you, Jesus, it might shake some of even the cultural norms of Christianity that we have parent and present today in which we say, what does it really truly look like to follow Jesus? The sad part is, today I can't push on all that. All I can do is prime it. The good news is, there's going to be lots of moments over the next year, year, pardon me, to discuss what it looks like to follow Jesus. And Matthew is forcing this question on us. Should we follow him? Is he good? Why or why not? Now, finish this out this morning. I got about 20 minutes, 15 minutes. I only can pick one story, one story in all of this section. But what I do want to show us is all of these demonstrate that these people's worlds were in a bit of chaos or disorder. Chaos is a familiar friend to each and every person in this room. Pain, brokenness, decay, suffering. I'm not sure which one of those terms resonates best with you, maybe all of them, but chaos is this unwelcomed friend who has joined each and every one of our lives that we've all spent time with. Maybe we identify with the leper who's felt like the outcast and is sick and his body is just wretched on the outside and is falling apart. Or or maybe we felt like those that were the many coming to Jesus at Peter's mother-in-law's house just saying, Lord, heal us. Or this centurion who was outside the family, family of God, the house of Israel. And he's taking this huge risk. Not only would his colleagues maybe look at him and go, dude, you're going to go to this Jewish rabbi to ask to heal your servant, worker, whomever it is? You're crazy. You're nuts. But they found themselves in a place of desperation. And in each of these stories, not one of them would I go, man, I wish I was in their shoes. (laughs) That looks like a fun place to be in. And the story I want to highlight this morning is the story of Jesus and the storm. Because it does a really good job of contrasting the unbelief or the D-minus faith of the disciples to the faith of the centurion. Now, when we talk about this story, you have to understand a little bit about the Sea of Galilee. It sits in this valley, and the winds can just come ripping through. I got to travel across it once in the eighth grade a long time ago. I had an opportunity to be in Israel. And the way it sits, though, is these storms would just come out of nowhere, and the winds would start to rage. So these fishermen, and they're on this boat with Jesus. There would have been no idea that they were themselves headed into some kind of storm. Not only that, when the scriptures talk about storms, which here in this passage, this is real. This is literal. Literal. There's other times where it uses the word storm, like in the Psalms, and it's discussing the um, chaos that the sea brings. 
And so we get this picture where the sea is one of chaos and disorder. Who can rule over it? In Psalm 93.4, it says, Mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. Who is mightier than the sea? Who reigns? Who rules over it? It is the Lord. In Revelation 21, it talks about how in the age to come, the sea will be no more. That is a picture in this very uh, picture-filled book of Revelation or letter of Revelation of chaos ceasing and order being brought about. Who is able to bring order and peace out of the chaos in our lives? And when we look at the miracles in the scriptures, we see that miracles are revelatory and redemptive. You can throw that up there, Britain. Revelatory and redemptive in the disciples' lives, in our lives, in stories even in the Old Testament. Let me explain a little bit of what I mean by that. It's revelatory because the storm reveals the fear. What's the fear of the disciples? We're going to die. You brought us out here, Jesus, and we're on the sea with you. We're supposed to go to the other side. We're going to die. It's also revelatory, not about bringing about their own fears, but about his ability to save. They were in danger. They were worried. They were terrified. And Jesus steps in in the story. It teaches us a little bit about who God is. Uh, I'm in, or I just finished, uh, Second Kings this morning. But in chapter 5, you read a story of a man named Naaman. And he was this warrior. And he was outside the family of God, outside of Israel. And he had actually contracted leprosy himself. And he goes to see, how can I be healed of this leprosy? And the prophet tells him, this is how you can be healed. Go dip yourself seven times in the Jordan. And he complains a little bit. Don't I have rivers back where I'm from that I can dip myself in? His servant pleads with him, just do it. Just try it. He does it. He's healed. And he says, now I know that the Lord your God is God in heaven. He goes, what kind of gift can I give you? prophet says, I don't need anything from you. He says, well, can I at least just take some dirt from Israel so that when I have to go to the temple and lean on the arm of my king, can I lean on, can I put down the dirt of Israel so I don't bow to Ramah, their God, but I bow to the God of Israel because I now know who he is. He's my God. You see, leprosy, fear, God reveals himself in the storm. God moved in the storm of Naaman's life. God is going to move in the storm of the disciples' lives. And when it comes to storms, we can see that they're redemptive, that God has a way of showing up and making himself known. Sometimes he ceases the storm. Sometimes we're just traveling through it. But he's there with us. And when it comes to storms in our lives, I don't always have answers to why things are happening. Sometimes they're caused by ourselves or caused by others or the sinful brokenness of the world. Or sometimes God brings them. But I want you to look at some details here this morning concerning the storm. First of all, in this story, what do we see Jesus doing? He's sleeping. I don't like sleeping, Jesus. I don't serve a God who sleeps. I serve a God who's like me. He's in a hurry and he gets everything done. That's the God I want to serve. But that's not the God of the Bible, is it? Americans, we need to learn this. We need to actually unlearn hurry. 
because our God is not in a hurry. We need to unlearn the idea that this has to happen immediately and things need to get done and things need to get fixed and it better be my way and I've got the best ideas. Jesus is asleep and when he's sleeping, they're wondering, where are you? What are you doing? Why aren't you moving in my life? And if you are a Christian or you're one of those people in that bounded set that are moving towards Christ in the sense of you're going, I'm hearing what you're saying about this Jesus. I've heard what you guys have been talking about him. He sounds great, but is he authentic? Can he be trusted? Can we follow him? There can be this mentality that gets pushed in evangelicalism that says, once you come to Jesus, he makes everything right. I've yet to meet the human who's experienced that truly. Yet I've seen so many who go, I'm going to follow Jesus, and then they get the eviction notice. They lose their job. There's still trouble in their life. And there's problems and there's folly and there's war that happens even with inside each and every one of us. And there can be this falseness that's talked about. And we go, but wait a second. Doesn't the psalmist say he owns the cattle on a thousand hills? Everything in that sense then is at his fingertips and disposal. If I just trust and serve and worship him, it will be fine. Or some might say, all you have to do is wake Jesus up. You're having a bad time? Yell louder at him. Sing louder. Shake him. Get his attention. And you tell that God what to do in your life. If we just pray harder to wake him. Or, or, or this one, you know, if Jesus is just in your boat, it's going to be okay. The storm will cease. It, it'll finally go away and there'll be victory in a trouble-free life. I've yet to find that in the scripture. But I've seen James 1, count it all joy, my brethren, when you fall into diverse temptations and trials. Read the letter that Peter wrote, the first letter he wrote to that church. Oh, dear church, you're in for it. There's going to be trials and tribulations and struggles, and God is working in your midst. So we come back to our story. The disciples cry out, Master, Master, We're going to drown. We're going to die. And I can just see Jesus like, it's kind of crazy out there. Gets a little stretch in because our God is not in a hurry. It's like, be still. And they're going, oh my goodness. He just stopped the waves and the wind. Who is this God that is able to do that. He's answering the question that we've been asking since Matthew chapter one. Oh, the genealogy says he's a king. The birth story says he's a king. Carson talked about how Jesus moved into doing miracles after his baptism and after him spending time in the wilderness. This furthers who Jesus is, not in a hurry. Why is he not in a hurry? Because he wants to show you something in your storm. People who are closest to the storm have the worst perspective of it. You do. So do I. I'm, I'm people too, okay? If you're in it, you've got the dis, this perspective of the disciples. We're going to drown. We're going to die. And Jesus is teaching them about who he is and what it looks like to have faith in him even when things feel like they're sinking. The next thing we see Jesus do is he rebukes. He rebukes the storm. And he rebukes the disciples. 
They both get a little bit of a talking to, don't they? And they're saying, Jesus, wake up lest we die. Have you ever been there in a trial or in a place in your life? There's no way I'm going to make it through this. Where are you? We've been following you. And I can just see Jesus looking at them. You think I brought you out here to die? Like that's how this story's going down? That the God of the universe is going to drown in a boat on the sea? No, 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 guys. That is not what's happening here. And he steps in and he rebukes the wind and he rebukes the disciples. And how he does this, he asks this question all about love. Save us lest we perish, lest we die. Jesus is saying, you guys need to remember who I am. In Mark chapter 4, when Mark tells the story, there's this aspect of, Master, don't you care that we're dying? If you're in a storm and it's on the tip of your tongue, I got to be sent here today to tell you he cares. He cares. He cares right now about your financial crisis. He cares right now about your pain and suffering. He cares right now about your sickness. I was just talking to my kids about this, that there is this great, big, massive God, Yahweh, and he cares right now about what our little family is going through. And they're just like, mind-blowing. Who else needs to hear that? He sees, he knows, he hears, he cares. And he wants the disciples to see this as well. Where a lot of us want to go with this is in this you don't care aspect, but he shows how much he cares. But our expectation is that of many Christians that, Jesus, you're in my boat, so make this stop. I literally read a commentator who said, whenever Jesus is in your boat, just get him in there and the storm will cease. But how many of us have had our boat filled with Jesus for 10, 15, 20 years And we've had an infirmity that we've lived with and walked with. We've had a trial. We've had a difficulty. We've had pain. We've been childlessness. We've had all of these different issues that have come into our life. And we say, where are you, God? And the reality is, you're only going to find peace when we see that Jesus himself is with us. Why why isn't the storm calm? Why won't it stop or go away? Sometimes these things happen to continue to keep us humble. Paul talked about that. Often we just don't have the foresight to actually see how this all plays out because we can only see in the temporary here and now. And lacking that foresight, we miss the fact that it's in the storm that God is building up your faith. It's in the storm God is growing you in him. In the storm, it's causing you to cling to him and cry out. The reality is, Not everybody gets delivered. In just a few short chapters, chapter 11, I'm going to teach on it in Easter, is John the Baptist who sends his disciples to Jesus. He's in prison. And he says, are you the one? And Jesus does all of Isaiah, heals the blind, causes the lame to walk, and does all this incredible stuff. And he goes, go tell John this. And he's waiting to hear, and he sets the captives free. And what he gets is, I am the one you're looking for. There'll never be another. And he loses his head and he dies. I don't get it, church. I don't know why some people get delivered and some people don't. I don't understand God's purposes and plans in the pain and the suffering other than the fact that I know I can trust him. About 
16, 17 years ago, I had two friends, one later in his 20s and one early in his 20s. Both got diagnosed with a similar kind of brain cancer. Both were followers of Jesus. One was about to be married. Another was a man who was pastoring a church, married with three children. A year later, one passed away. And one is still now going in for scans and is all clear. My friend Brent left his children and his wife, and we all went, why, God? Why? It doesn't make sense. And it's not that he shouldn't have been healed over here, and and he should have. It's that we have such limited perspective in this life. And we have these trials, and what I will tell you is it will end one way or another, but the hope of the follower of Jesus is that he brings to pass resurrection in your heart and your life. That yes, this will end, but it may not be how you want it to end. And until it ends, you have the opportunity to say, you are God, there will never be another, and I'm going to trust you. Because God does not waste our suffering, our pain. And he will bring us to its right end. I don't know why God does and doesn't do certain things. But when I look at the story of Jesus, I'm left with this position that has to say, he's not safe, but he is good. And redeemers, he is calling us to step into not safe, but good. What does that look like for our church? It looks like taking bold steps to actually pray for one another and pray healing. Internal healing, external healing, relational healing. It looks like taking steps going out into our community and sharing the good news of Jesus with others. Faith is applying what you know to be true. What you know to be true is when you're in the storm, God is good. Faith is not, I know God will stop the sea. It's I know that God is with me in the sea. I know that to be true. I don't know what he's going to do in the midst of what I'm going through. God is calling us. Step out. He is good. He is king. He is not safe. Let's pray. Father, I know this week that including myself, as this has been a sermon that I've been writing my life on, my entire life, that others needed to hear this. I think there's people in here who need to boldly ask you for healing and others in here who need to pray for those that need healing. There's people in here who need to know they're loved and cared for even in the midst of circumstances they had no control over. And they need your peace and your shalom to know that you are with them and you are faithful regardless of the outcome. So God, I pray for all kinds of healing to happen today in our hearts. Emotional healing, spiritual healing, physical healing. God, I pray that you would be enlarged in our eyes and our problems would diminish and shrink because we know that you are good, reigning, you calm seas, you heal lepers, You speak the words and centurion servants are healed. They walk. You cast out demons. God, you've called us as your people 
as disciples, not converts, as disciples to go and do these things. Embolden us. May we not be weird. Pray that, Lord. But may we be willing servants who risk.